I'm Josh Hammer, and this is America on Trial, the brand new podcast getting you all the bite-sized, digestible information that you need to feel informed as we approach this unique, unprecedented, and litigation and lawfare riddled of presidential elections, the forthcoming rematch between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. It's been one heck of a news cycle. We have never been busier when it comes to the legal aspects of the 2024 presidential election. So without further ado, let's dive in and go around the horn. We first check in briefly in Washington, D.C. We'll get to the major Supreme Court oral argument later in the show. But we first briefly check in at the D.C. Circuit, where it was just Earlier this week, where the three-judge panel finally weighed in and denied President Donald Trump's sweeping claim of presidential immunity for actions that he took between the November 2020 election and the end of his presidency, including the events of January 6, 2021, we are currently staring down the barrel of a Monday, February 12th deadline for what Trump's attorneys will do when it comes to that case. All signs point toward Trump's attorneys seeking an emergency stay of that denial at the Supreme Court while they seek en banc review before the full 11-judge D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. This is the correct strategy, in my opinion, for purposes of trying to run out the clock. The D.C. prosecution there with Jack Smith really is the apple of the Democratic Party's eye, is the shining Joe Biden, Merrick Garland, Jack Smith operation. From a Trump perspective there, you want to just try to run out the clock proverbially speaking there, and I think first seeking en banc review after an emergency stay before jump jumping straight to the Supreme Court, I think that probably is the right move. But we're looking at a February 12th deadline, so we're going we're gonna to have to hear from his lawyers on that one way or the other very soon. We will cover that, obviously, as soon as they make that decision. Let's briefly check in in New York City. Another ruling that we are expecting imminently, and again, it's hard to keep track of all these trials. That's why you need to listen and subscribe here to our show, America on Trial, every single day. But let's not forget, we're also expecting an imminently forthcoming decision from Justice Arthur Ngoron. He is the New York State judge overseeing New York Attorney General Tish James's sprawling fraud fishing expedition. As we've previously covered on the show, one of the interesting things that has recently come up when it comes to that case is that Justice Ngoron is currently trying to figure out what to do when it comes to a potential perjury from Trump Organization's longtime CFO, Alan Weisselberg. They're not entirely sure exactly what to do with that. Justice Arthur Ngoron has been going back and forth about this possible perjury admission there. And on Thursday, you had some email correspondence between Justice Ngoron and Trump's attorneys there. This is the interesting part for for purposes of our show. The Trump lawyers in this case have been throwing a lot of doubt on the impartiality or lack thereof of Justice Ngoron since this fraud trial got started there. They, They continue to do so this week when it comes to this back and forth about what to do with the fact that Weisselberg might have perjured himself. And here's the key quote that Justice Ngoron wrote in an email just yesterday back to Trump's lawyers. He wrote, quote, You and your co-counsel have been questioning my impartiality since the early days of this case, presumably, presumably because I sometimes rule against your clients. That approach is getting old. I am not reopening the case, but if someone pleads guilty to committing perjury in a case over which I am presiding, I want to know about it. So the, the point here and the reason I wanted to bring this up is because you can tell that Justice Ngoron is, is peeved with these constant allegations of impartiality from Trump's lawyers. I am not saying that the man 
is impartial. He probably does harbor a deep-rooted animus against Donald Trump. He, after all, is a state judge in in New York State. He is a liberal man himself there. But, you know, all signs are pointing towards the fact that he's going to hold Trump liable for massive damages. The only question there is how much it is going to be. What is the No Spin News all about? You know that this is a fact-based analysis news program. You know that. We avoid speculation. We don't do conspiracies here. We don't do party politics here. We're not nonpartisan. That's wrong. Not that. Okay, we are advocates for a stronger America and a more just society. We don't believe in communism. We don't believe in socialism. We don't believe in nihilism. We don't believe in the progressive woke culture. We think it is un-American. We don't support that. So you should know what we are. And it would then crystallize what we do. Listen to the No Spin News. Subscribe to Bill O'Reilly's podcast feed wherever podcasts are available. I'm Mike Slater from the podcast Politics by Faith. This is a crazy time in our country. It's stressful, a lot of anxiety, and it's going to get worse. And I realized that one of the things that helps me take away the stress is realizing that there's nothing new under the sun. So on this podcast, we take the news of the day, and we run it through the Bible and other periods in history to realize that we've been through this before and we can rise above again. Politics by Faith, anywhere you listen to the podcast. Politics by Faith. Another huge, huge story that went down just yesterday on February 8th. We'll, we'll have to do a deep dive on this as well. It's just, it's just such a crazy news day where we only do one deep dive per show. We'll go deep on this in a, in a future episode, but... For present purposes, we'll just skim over it. Special Counsel Robert Hur, who was a special counsel who was tasked with investigating Joe Biden's own classified documents retention scandal, recalled that over a year ago now, in January of 2023, it came out that Joe Biden, after his time as vice president to then-President Barack Obama, was actually illicitly holding a lot of classified documents for himself, both in his home in Wilmington, Delaware, as well as at the Penn Biden Center, this Chinese Communist Party think tank of sorts there in Washington, D.C., and he finally has released his, his report. This report is long anticipated. Many people were, were wondering what it was going to be, and he says that he's not going to charge Joe Biden with any crimes. Joe Biden, of course, is the sitting president of the United States. That is consistent with longstanding Department of Justice policy, first issued in an Office of Legal Counsel memo during the Nixon years in 1973, just before Watergate, and then was reaffirmed during the Clinton administration in October 2000. This is longstanding DOJ policy that a sitting president cannot be indicted for a crime while in office. Robert Hur says in his report that he is going to be faithful to that. He, he does go a little beyond that. It was a little gratuitous. He actually says that even were it not for that longstanding DOJ policy against indicting sitting presidents, that the conduct here actually still would not arise to the level of being criminally prosecutable. I, I disagree with his inclusion of that gratuitous language. There, there is no reason for doing that. To an extent, it's, it's kind of reminiscent of what Jim Comey did in the summer of 2016, in July of 2016, during the height of that presidential election, when he manufactured, concocted out of thin air, this ad hoc 
mens rea, this ad hoc standard, legal standard of extreme carelessness, which is what at the time he whipped out to describe Hillary Clinton's treatment of her private email server, the 33,000 emails. There was no reason for him to create this out of thin air. And there similarly, I think, was no reason for Robert Hurd to go there. Having said that, I mean, this is a huge having said that. Wow. I mean, this thing is really, really damning for Joe Biden. What Robert Hur puts into this report, you know, the left is already freaking the heck out about it. They are saying that this is a right-wing hit job from within Joe Biden's own Department of Justice. Now, it, it is worth pointing out that Robert Hur clerked back in 2002, 2003 on the Supreme Court for then-Chief Justice William Rehnquist, who is one of the greatest Supreme Court justices over the past half-century. He was a stalwart, rock-ribbed conservative, one of the leaders of the court's conservative revolution by the time that he had passed away, around 2005, 2006 or so. Ted Cruz was one of his stalwart law clerks. He had many, many notable conservative law clerks. So at the time, the Merrick Garland actually announced that Robert Hur was going to be the special counsel in this case. I actually personally was scratching my head you know, why would they do that? It didn't really make a whole lot of sense. I mean, from a conservative perspective, I liked it. And sure enough, the left is now freaking out at the really just wild rhetoric at times that Robert Hur put into this report. Now, again, he's not recommending that Biden be indicted. He's actually saying that even if he were not sitting president, he would still not recommend he be indicted. But he basically says that Joe Biden is out to lunch, has no idea what's going on in the world. His memory is totally shot. I mean, here's a key quote in here where, where he's trying to explain just why he wouldn't actually recommend bringing this case to trial, even were it not for that longstanding GOJ policy. Robert Hur writes, quote, We have also considered that at trial, Mr. Biden would likely present himself to a jury, as he did during our interview of him, as a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. Based on our direct interactions with and observations of him, he is someone for whom many jurors will want to identify reasonable doubt. It would be difficult to convince a jury that they should convict him, by then a former president well into his 80s, of a serious felony that requires a mental state of willfulness. Uh, literally what Robert Hur is saying here is that the reason that he is not recommending indictment, even were it not for this longstanding GOJ policy is because Joe Biden can't have the relevant mens rea, that's the Latin term for mentality, he can't have the relevant mindset of willfulness that is needed because he, he doesn't know what he's doing. Like he literally does not know what he's doing because he's just that palpably senile. Later on in the report, they say that he can't even remember the year that his son, Bo, Bo Biden, died. Apparently this thing was just, was just so bad that Joe Biden's own lawyers were basically begging Robert Hur before he released it to not include this sort of rhetoric. Apparently, one of Joe Biden's lawyers wrote this to Robert Hur prior to the release. They wrote, quote, We do not believe that the report's treatment of President Biden's memory is accurate or appropriate. The report uses highly prejudicial language to describe a commonplace occurrence among witnesses, a lack of recall of years-old events. Wild stuff. I mean, that did not stop Robert Hur from publishing it as is. Again, I object to the gratuitous, you know, even if the DOJ did not have this policy, I would still not endorse or st st still not recommend indictment. I, I, I dissent from that line in the report, but wow, this thing overall is just utterly, utterly damning for Joe Biden. The Democrats are not going to be able to run away from this. They're going to have to confront this head on. They are freaking the heck out right now, I think, at DNC headquarters. 
One other major bit of legal news prior to the Supreme Court oral argument that will be today's deep dive. A big, big controversy now brewing out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. I speak, of course, of the state of Hawaii. The highest court in Hawaii, the Hawaii Supreme Court, has issued an astonishing ruling, an astonishing ruling that just flatly says that they are not going to abide by the U.S. Supreme Court's Second Amendment jurisprudence since the landmark 2008 case. So you've had three major Second Amendment cases. 2008 was Heller, 2010 was City of Chicago versus McDonald's, and then in 2022, just two terms ago, you had the Bruin case out of New York State. The Hawaii Supreme Court just flat out says that they are not going to listen to this Second Amendment affirming jurisprudence because, and I can't make this up, this is a serious thing that they put into the reporter here. They wrote, quote, the spirit of aloha clashes with a federally mandated lifestyle that lets citizens walk around with deadly weapons during day-to-day activities. The history of the Hawaiian Islands does not include a society where armed people move about the community to possibly combat the deadly aims of others. I mean, just astonishing stuff. You know, I'm old enough to remember, in the aftermath of the Obergefell case, the horrific same-sex marriage decision at the Supreme Court in 2015, I am old enough to remember when you had that law clerk there in Kentucky, a woman by the name of Kim Davis, and you had Ted Cruz, Mike Huckabee, and a lot of other social conservatives who went there to Kentucky to stand with Kim Davis, who was a marriage clerk who refused to hand out marriage licenses to same-sex couples. And the left was screaming, anarchy, lawlessness. Well, you can't have it both ways. You literally cannot have it both ways. This is an insane thing that the Supreme Court of Hawaii has written here. They are going to get rebuked. They are ultimately going to lose this battle. The most straightforward way to make sure that they lose that battle is that you will have a plaintiff in Hawaii, a gun-owning plaintiff, who will file some lawsuit in federal court, and the Supreme Court will summarily affirm a lower court. I mean, it's going to take a little time. But this is just gumming up the works there. Again, maybe we'll do a deep dive in a later podcast about the doctrine of judicial supremacy, what it means, what it doesn't mean, and so forth. But absolutely insane stuff, to put it mildly, from the state of Hawaii. Okay, with all of that said, let's get to today's deep dive, which is, of course, the fact that there was a massive, massive oral argument on Thursday, February 8th at the United States Supreme Court in the case of Trump versus Anderson. We've discussed it very often on this show. It is the case out of Colorado, an appeal from the, the Supreme Court of Colorado pertaining to the question as to whether Donald Trump is disqualified from the ballot due to the so-called insurrection clause of 14th Amendment Section 3, a clause that really has not been interpreted in straightforward fashion. It it, it is, for the most part, a, a case that lawyers refer to as a case of first impression. There is some, some case law to an extent. I mean, there's an 1869 case called Griffin's case that dealt with one aspect of the clause, but largely a case of of first impression. And the oral argument went about as well for Donald Trump as I think it could have. As as I told you on on this show, I know the lawyer who filed Trump's brief and argued for him in court, Jonathan Mitchell. I know Jonathan Mitchell quite well. He is hands down one of the most absolutely brilliant right-wing legal intellects in the country there. God willing, if we should get so lucky, he should be the United States Solicitor General, or it's not going to happen, but it would be, really be pretty spectacular if he even were a Supreme Court justice himself. You know, there were some people I saw on social media who were criticizing his oral advocacy by saying that he was being a little too defensive, that he was not taking the friendly questions there. 
I, I think that he knew a, exactly what he was doing. He was trying to take a posture of defensiveness in order to juxtapose himself with opposing counsel, the, the counsel representing the state of Colorado, to try to make them seem overly confident and overly strident. I think this was, this was actually part of Jonathan Mitchell's strategy. And the oral argument went sensationally well. You had two of the three liberal justices, Elena Kagan and Katanji Brown-Jackson, yes, even Katanji Brown-Jackson, who were deeply, deeply skeptical of the notion that Colorado or any state, for that matter, can actually go ahead and unilaterally decide to kick a major party's presidential candidate off the ballot. You had Chief Justice John Roberts, another one of the swingier votes on the court, who also seemed deeply skeptical. For the chief, I think you have... You know, some major overriding concerns that someone like the chief would would be concerned about. Typically, he gets into things like patchworks. So one of the concerns raised by Donald Trump's attorneys and those of us who think that it's crazy to allow states to to unilaterally do this is that you could you could ultimately get a patchwork system where random state bureaucrats, state administrators, state judges, and so forth there would be capable of just disqualifying presidential candidates willy-nilly. It seemed that at oral argument that John Roberts was indeed skeptical of that, as many of us thought that he would be there. So, you know, doing some quick vote counting here, I mean, Neil Gorsuch was deeply, deeply skeptical. Uh, ironically, actually, the lawyer for the state of Colorado on the, on the other side of the, of the equation from Jonathan Mitchell, the lawyer was actually a former 10th Circuit law clerk for then-Judge Gorsuch, but Neil Gorsuch still still absolutely tore into him there. You know, the upshot is that this thing is going to be, I, I think at this point, probably unanimous. Maybe 8 to 1. It depends whether Sonia Sotomayor wants to really go on a limb there and write some absolutely nonsensical, bat-crap, crazy dissent simply to try to, you know, preen for the cameras and, and make the people on MSNBC and Rachel Maddow and all those clowns just giggle. It, that literally would be the only reason. Uh, it, it would solidify her resistance street cred, basically. That's essentially the only reason why she would do it. Because, because other than that, you're looking at an extraordinarily straightforward argument where it looks like even Tanji Brown-Jackson is simply not buying it. The most interesting thing to me was that when it comes to this argument as to whether a president is a, quote, officer of the United States for purposes of the Insurrection Clause, 14th Amendment, Section 3, you know, any, everyone on the left, including those who are newfound to the left, such as former Fourth Circuit Judge J. Michael Ludig, the once venerable conservative judge who has just been absolutely beclowning himself for the past four years as some sort of new Bill Crystal adjacent resistance hero, those like Ludig and the MSNBC quote-unquote legal analysts were totally flipping out at the idea that anyone could take this argument seriously, could entertain the possibility that a president is not a quote, officer of the United States, as the term is used. I have argued on this show and elsewhere that indeed the president and vice president are not actually properly subsumed under that catch-all category of, quote, officers of the United States, that in a friend of the court brief is what numerous former U.S. attorneys general, such as Bill Barr, Michael Mukasey, and Ed Meese argued as well. It, it was initially developed by Seth Tillman, and Josh Blackman, but really more Seth Tillman, who's a somewhat obscure Irish law professor. Well, he's actually an American Jew. He, he teaches in Ireland. Talked about him on the show yesterday. It was considered a once arcane, obscure legal theory that is now getting street cred. In fact, it's getting so much 
newfound credibility that even Katanji Brown Jackson herself wrote about, which really just raises the incredibly enticing and intriguing possibility that you could have Katanji Brown Jackson writing an ultra-originalist majority opinion for an 8-1 to or 9-0 to court that would hold that the president is not an officer of the United States. What a world that would be. I, I predict they probably will take in a slightly different direction, and they probably will go 8-1 to or 9-0 to on the question of whether the insurrection clause is quote-unquote self-executing. It seems like the justices, properly speaking, do not believe that it is self-executing. You only have one congressional statute, the Insurrection Act, which is even remotely relevant here. The Congress has, has legislated in this area, but they don't even define what a quote-unquote insurrection is in the Insurrection Act, ironically. And for that matter, Donald Trump, of course, has not been charged anywhere with actual insurrection. So I think they probably will go down the this is not self-executing and Congress has to take the lead and legislate there. That, that after all, is what Section 5 of the 14th Amendment is there for. Congress has the ability to enforce Sections 1 through 4 through appropriate legislation. They thus far have not done so. That also would ameliorate the concerns when it comes to this patchwork system, because if Congress speaks, they speak for the entire country there. So that is where I predict this ultimately is going to go. It'll be interesting to see whether you have someone like a Justice Gorsuch or, heck, I mean, maybe even a Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson, based on oral arguments, who wants to write an interesting concurring opinion about the officers of the United States provision there. But regardless, this thing is going to be decided 8-1 to one or 9-0. to zero. I feel very, very confident about that now. And overall, just an excellent, excellent day in court for Donald Trump and his lawyer, Jonathan Mitchell. And really, when you combine what happened there on the Trump versus Anderson case with the Robert Herr special counsel report, just frankly, just an excellent day to be on the right of center of America, paying attention to 2024 legal issues in general. A great day for those of us here on America on trial. Just a reminder on that note, if you're not already doing so, please do go ahead and subscribe to our podcast. Leave us that five-star review. Drop us a comment. Let us know how you feel. I hope all of you have a great weekend. This has been a crazy busy week when it comes to the legal drama in the 2024 presidential election. And you know what the craziest news of all is? We're just getting started here. And I can't wait to dive into it each and every day for you here on America on Trial.